So welcome again to Redcast and Tony Collins, historian, sports historian and author of many of the books that I would like to have written. In this Redcast, uh, the second part of our discussion with Tony, we talk about his sport in capitalist society, an account of how sport has developed as an element of capitalist society since the 18th century. Now, I think this quote nicely sums up the book, the idea that sport has been hijacked by team owners or commodified by corporate interest fails to understand that modern sport is itself a creation of capitalism. There was no pre-lapsarian era in which football, baseball or any other modern sport was played by people purely for enjoyment. So Tony, to understand the society you need to understand its preoccupations and to do that you need to understand its sports. I like to travel to South America, and I just don't see how you can write any history of country like Uruguay, Argentina, and Brazil without dealing with their relationship with association football. This is the astonishing void that Eduardo Galeano talked about in his uh, Soccer in Sun and Shadow. Why do you think sports is neglected by so many historians? Do they see it as too frivolous for serious history? Or is it all part of the general tendency to ignore working class history? A um, bit of both, but I think generally it's because um, most historians, certainly academic historians, um, don't really have that deep interest in the li daily lives of ordinary people. And I think that if you want to really understand um, in most countries, if you want to understand working class people, I think you need to understand something about sport because it plays such an important role uh, in daily life, whether it's players, spectators, or just you know, just in the general discussions about uh, 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 you know, daily discussions that people have. But also, on the other hand, I think there's a tendency to um, uh, to want to ignore the way that in which sport actually highlights. The contradictions in society that it's in many ways sport is used as a way of demonstrating how we're all in this together and we're you know we're all we're all cheering for the same team if you like or we're all cheering for the same sport or the same nation whereas in fact sport doesn't do that and yeah you know, as i've said before rugby is a great example of how sport can be an incredibly divisive thing and can reflect you know sharp class contradictions and other contradictions in terms of gender and race in society and by and large i think um, mainstream historians either tend to shy away from those things or they try and gloss over them so and i think sport really if you look at it properly uh, highlights all of these things interesting stuff alex what's your take on this mate with particular reference to our previous conversation on rugby league in history well, I, I think um, a study of sport uh, through history uh, is the perfect expression, really, of the materialist conception of history, as Marx uh, Marx would have called it. Because we're, what are we talking about when we're talking about sport? We're describing the uh, the actions, the social relations, the entertainment, the 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 love of 
the love of exercise and fellowship and comradeship that is common to all human societies. I mean, it's a, it's just a fact that it's common across all human societies. So by describing that, by studying it, uh, what we're doing is we're studying the material basis of human societies rather than some platonic ideal, uh, such as you know, the Corinthian amateur uh, ideal, um, which was, a, as we discussed previously, I think in a previous episode, an attempt to impose a rigid doctrine of the ruling class or the upper upper classes on what was a popular sport uh, in, in the case of rugby. And um, so for me, study of sport is uh, a materialist approach uh, to history, uh, to a, con- a materialist conception of history. And it's the perfect vehicle for it. And the great advantage as well of discussing it as we are doing now, and hopefully we'll do again in the future, is that because sport is a popular, uh, a popular subject. I mean, by popular, I don't just mean that people like it. Uh, it's of the people. It is literally of the people. And therefore, it draws in uh, a lot of people who want... If, if you look at how you know, the British educational system systematically turns working class people away from study of uh, history, of their own, but by ignoring their own history, but also by making it very dull, making it, seeing it through a series of uh, very formalistic uh, s- screens uh, and filters. But then you examine the the the, the fanaticism. Uh, I mean, that's the word, the fanaticism with which working class people follow their club, uh, their particular sports the amount of knowledge they have about its history, about the great individual sports people, uh, about the, 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 the way that the sport has transformed over the years, about the, the sponsorship deals, about the big money behind it. I mean, the amount of knowledge that people will generate in fan clubs and on fan forums is quite simply extraordinary. So the great advantage of studying sport as a historical subject is not just that it's popular as in played by the people, but it actually is something that people engage with on a mass, in a mass way. So it allows you to talk about all sorts of other issues that they've been told aren't really for them to discuss or are boring, such as imperialism, which we touched on in the last um, discussion that we had with Tony, or the birth of new unionism in the 1890s, which we touched on in the discussion around the breakaway of, uh, of rugby league or the I think it was described by Tony not as so much a breakaway as a a, 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 a lockout. Um, so you know th- this is why sport is a great subject for historical study. Right. Thank you very much, Dave, gentlemen, for those uh, interesting explanations. There, sport matters. Right. Let's talk about what's fundamentally different about sport and capitalist society. Because sports have always been played and were very important to people and the ruling elites in ancient Greece and Rome. Tony, in the book you say here, the narrative of challenge, contest and competition, so central to the development of a capitalist society, became embedded in the newly emerging sporting world of the 18th century. How was this different qualitatively from sport in ancient Greece, another competitive, bellicose 
and highly individualistic society? Well, I, th I think basically, largely uh, up until the 16th, 17th century, that sport was, other than informal recreational events, organized sport was part of ritual and ceremony. So in Greece, it was sport, particularly the Olympic Games, was seen as essentially a religious festival. Uh, and that's how the Olympics started off as a, uh, a festival in honor of Zeus. Um, and so they were always sport, organized sports was always, were always seen as uh, either um, relating to religion, uh, to military training, or for some aspect of the, um, uh, of the economic year in terms of seasons. So obviously ha harvest time was a always a great time in Britain and in the rest of Europe uh, for, for, for sports. So they were kind of episodic. They weren't seen as, certainly weren't seen as commercial entertainments by and large. Um, they weren't seen as something that existed separately and independently from other key aspects of life in Greece or Rome uh, or wherever. They're either religious, uh, military or ceremonial. But what you get in, uh, in Britain in the 18th century is that sport starts to develop as a commercial entertainment. And that's related to the way in which the, the, um, um, the British aristocracy uh, transforms itself into a landed capitalist class and that um, it starts to measure itself by the amount of money that, that it has. Unlike the, the aristocracies of, um, of Western Europe, the, by and large, the English aristocracy uh, is um, it's really integrated into, in, in, into, into the capitalist class. And so the huge amounts of money that it earns from uh, its land and then particularly from, uh, from overseas, from the, the beginnings of the British Empire and slavery, um, it has huge amounts of disposable income and uh, the, uh, particularly the sons of the aristocracy use that money in the, uh, and their, the extraordinary leisure time that they have to fund their hobbies and those hobbies uh, are sports and particularly sports like horse racing, cricket and boxing. Tell me how important you think gambling was to the development of sport in this period. Well, I think one of the one of the great ironies is that today, you know, today people there's a lot of um, uh, worry about the influence that gambling has over sport. But in fact, if you go back to the 18th century, it's actually the case that gambling led to the emergence of modern sport because the um, um, the rules of sport, and again, this is one of the differences between modern sport and older sport, that modern sport has universal rules. Uh, you know, if you go and watch a football match, it's the same rules wherever you go. Um, and in the 18th century, that meant that the three key sports, uh, as I mentioned, horse racing, boxing and cricket, all started to develop rules. And again, this is part of the capitalist consolidation, the consolidation of the capitalist economy. And so you get legal, you know, the, the, the law in Britain is transformed because of its need to uh, preserve and defend private property. And so in sport, you also get um, uh, universal laws developing. So in particular, by the middle of the uh, 18th century, by the 1750s, 1760s, there are, by and large, universally accepted rules in place for horse racing, uh, for boxing, 
and for cricket. And for each in each of those sports, a key component of those rules and the reason for those rules to be drawn up is gambling. So that gambling is transparent and open and above board. So that if you're gambling, if you're putting money down on your cricket team to win or your, your boxer to win or your horse to win, you know exactly what the rules and regulations are and you know that you're not going to be cheated. And so, for example, in boxing, um, in the 1750s, um, 1740s, I think, Jack Broughton introduced what was seen as the first universally acknowledged rules of boxing. And one of the key aspects of that was not only did he define when a, uh, when a boxer was knocked out, and so the match is over, uh, it also specified that the winning money had to be paid to the winning boxer in the ring at the time that he won to, to try and avoid and stop the potential for fixed fights. Um, and so, and in cricket, and again, today cricket likes to present itself as the, 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 the embodiment of um, pure amateur, originally of pure amateurism. In cricket, the first rules of the MCC had an appendix about how we could bet, the best ways to bet on bowling and batting uh, during a match. So, so gambling was absolutely central to the way that rule, modern rules of sport were drawn up, but also it was, a, it was a driving force because there was so much money involved. I mean, um, certainly in cricket, there were wages of £1,000, which in those days is just an astronomical sum. Um, and therefore that had to be done just as business had to be conducted above board so that people could um, see what they're investing in. So too gambling had to be above board and that gave rise to um, uh, universal rules, governing bodies and clearly accepted structures for important, the most important sports of the, of the uh, 1700s. It's, it's interesting how important gambling is and how sniffy people get about gambling about sport. Uh, sport does seem to attract a certain level of moral hypocrisy. I noted in the book you talked about um, sport was consciously directed towards ensuring that working class leisure was looking to create a new moral framework suited to the needs of an urban industrial capitalist economy. I get really ticked off whenever you hear people, including some working class people, get angry about young footballers getting paid a huge amount of money. You don't hear the same anger whenever golfers or tennis players get paid that huge amount of cash. This is because they're working class. There seems to be this kind of anger about working class people doing well. Uh, what do you think of that? Well, I think one of the interesting things is that um, before, before the development of the industrial working class, um it, in the in the 1700s when sport first emerged um there was no sense that it should be amateur uh amateurs simply meant a lover of sport and there was no um restrictions on the amount of money that uh, young aristocrats could gamble or earn in their in their betting which you know and there, there are stories which are undoubtedly true that you know people lost their entire um uh, their entire inheritances gambling on horse racing or boxing or cockfighting. It's only when you have the development of a mass industrial working class in the first half of the 19th century that sport becomes obsessed with amateurism. Again, because amateurism is a way of regulating and controlling who can play and what they can do within the sport. And so 
when when sport was predominantly the um, uh, the concern of the aristocracy, nobody cared about the amount of money that could be earned. Nobody cared about amateurism. It wasn't even a fact. It wasn't even discussed. But amateurism and the idea that sport had a moral purpose came into sport in the 1840s, 1850s, and it was part of the the whole process of disciplining the industrial working class and also controlling its leisure pursuits. So alongside of the introduction of amateurism into rugby and football and and also cricket as well, um, you also have things like uh, the banning of folk footballs, mass football games in uh, in industrial towns and villages because of the disruption that caused they they caused to uh, to 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 business and industry by being played throughout a, a whole day by sealing off streets where the game was played in streets. Uh, you also find that leisure time itself is restricted from something like forty odd holidays in the British calendar in in the eighteenth century. That's reduced to, I think, six days uh, by the 1830s. Um, and so sport is seen as an arena in which, the, um, in which the, the habits of the working class can be trained to, uh, to meet the needs of industrial capitalism. That you, you're, the, It's there as one of the ways in which the expectations and, and in many ways, the culture of working class people who come into the cities to work in, in factories could be changed to make them efficient industrial workers for capitalism in the factory system. And there was the usual bullshit. Sorry, Alex, just give me a second, mate. There was the usual bullshit invention of tradition here. What was that cricket book the guy wrote when he talked about how cricket was a great time for all working class people and bourgeois people to get together and play up and play the game? Oh, there's well, there's a famous one by John Nyron. There's a lot, there's a lot of, as you said, there's a lot of attempts in the 1830s, 40s, 50s to kind of rewrite the history of sport. And John John Nyron's um, History of Hambledon Cricket Club, which was like the the most important cricket club in the um, uh, in the 1700s um, presented this picture of um, you know if you like the um, uh, the 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 rich man in his castle the poor man at his gate and they but they can get together to play cricket on the village green uh, during summer and there are no yeah all social tensions all difficulties uh, are lost because they all enjoyed playing this wonderful English game and and that really set the tone for the the narrative that all sports have because you know you know you see today you know, sport and national unity and sport bringing people together is really the dominant idea that you get whenever you know you read about sport in the papers you see sport on uh, on the tv um that's the under if you like the what i call in the book the deep politics of sport it's about national unity about class harmony and ignoring the reality of of, of life in capitalism that's one more reason why I love French rugby league because they use rugby league there as a means of pursuing the class war. Okay, Alex, what's your take on this, mate, so far? Um, I think uh, Tony's point that the uh, development of sport in capitalist society uh, is the uh, delineates the way in which the industrial working class are being. Uh, 
the, the need to pacify the industrial working class through uh, a code of behavior of culture of cultural behavior uh, which is acceptable to their rulers is a good one i think there's another point i wanted to come back to about what tony just said um i mean he talked about the way that british capitalism specifically the industrial revolution in britain developed um as a consequence of the slave trade and colonialism and you know the the atlantic slave trade in particular um but also the activities of the east india company uh from uh, the from from the uh, late 17th early 18th century now one of the things that you need if you're going to have a colonial uh, empire which is able to extract raw materials uh, extract gold uh, extract surplus value from the labor of uh, enslaved people is you need to have uh, a very powerful navy uh, and you need to have an army which you are able to do, which are able to deploy uh, all around the world. So when you've got these large numbers of men that you're sending to uh, the Caribbean, to North America, to India, uh, to uh, Aden, to various ports in the Mediterranean and the tip of Southern Africa, you of course have to find something for them to do because they're generally young men of fighting age, well, they have to be of fighting age, they're fit, relatively speaking, uh, and you know, if they're not going to cause mayhem uh, when they're um, away from home, you have to give them something to do. So the need then is developed for the creation of team sports, particularly, which are able to engage uh, you know, regimented sports, literally regimented sports for people who are under um, under the Queen's colours. And um, so the development of sport then in the, in the modern context in Britain is also about the development of Britain's colonial and imperial uh, history. And I mean, you can certainly see that most clearly with cricket uh, in terms as today in terms of its, its footprint around the world, which so closely uh, follows Britain's imperial uh, history. Uh, but I mean, even in places which Britain long ago abandoned as uh, colonial outposts or military outposts. I mean, for example, I'm, I'm just reminded of um, Corfu in, uh, you know, in Greece, uh, in the Aegean, uh, you know, one, one of the Greek islands just off the coast of Albania, where in Corfu town, there is a cricket pitch right bang in the middle of the town, which was originally put there by Royal Navy sailors. And you would find that in most of the uh, military outposts, most of the coaling stations, which supplied the British Empire. Um, so I think I'd really be interested in what uh, Tony thinks about that, because to me, that indicates that the development of sports and um, uh, under specifically British capitalism is not just about the industrial working class at home it's also about a recognition of the need to uh, have empire and to supply empire and to maintain empire through oppression uh, through military oppression where, where, where necessary and um, having a standing army and uh, a royal navy so 
I mean, can you just sort of reflect on uh, any of those questions there, Tony? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. The, I, I think the first point to make is that obviously sport plays a huge role in the education system initially for in the public schools where the idea of amateur sport first emerges but also in state schools and part of that is because it's seen as a as military preparedness that you you have um, boys and young men who are fit that they can go into the army but also that they learn discipline they learn learn what would be seen uh, as, as team spirit to uh, to take orders or if you're an officer to give orders as well and so that intermingling of sport and, uh, and mil military ideology happens very early on partly because um, going back slightly it, sport emerges as a um, uh, as a um, as a part as a part of British nationalism during the wars against Napoleon and the the characters of characteristics of what would seen as British sport of fair play of openness team spirit are contrasted with those of the of, uh, of revolutionary France and it's an attempt to um, present an alternative to uh, liberty equality and fraternity. But by the time you get to the the middle of the nineteenth century, then it's quite uh, sport is quite explicitly seen as part of empire building. And so you have um, you have newspapers saying things like um, you know sport is one of the things that's helped to make the Anglo-Saxon race the best soldiers and sailors uh, that the world has ever known. Um, perhaps most famously, after the um, the Boer War, the Boer War, um, Anglo-South African War in the early 1900s, it's fought to a stalemate with the Afrikaners. Um, there is a massive. Uh, um, question of what's going on in the education system and so um, sport and military drill is brought into uh, into the board schools uh, what became state schools as a way of uh, making sure that um, boys and young men are fit enough to uh, play an active role in the British Army so you have that as a it's a it's so there's a direct relationship with military preparedness and military training in wider society outside of the armed forces there's a direct relationship between the encouragement of sport and that preparedness. And the other thing is, I think just ideologically as well, it's about um, sport is about promoting British nationalism. Um, muscular Christianity is kind of the philosophical term, the ideological term that's used to describe what sport was in the 19th century. And really, that's just a form of you know, British nationalism uh, that's taken up, as you say, by the rest of the... Uh, the rest of the English-speaking um, co colonialists of the, of the British Empire. So muscular Christianity is, is strong amongst white settlers in uh, Australia, New Zealand, uh, the colonial administrators in India, uh, because it's a, it's a form of uh, British nationalism and at the heart of muscular Christianity is sport. So yeah, it's absolutely central to the expansion of the empire. In the, and, uh, in the 19th century. And, and I mean, we're, we're sort of uh, accustomed, I think, nowadays, um, when we see, for example, in the United States, sporting events that start with the singing of their national anthem, the Star Spangled Banner, or saluting the flag, or various other uh, symbols or tokens of uh, nas na nationalism. Uh, that kind of jars with us today, because apart from maybe the FA Cup final and um, the Olympics, 
in general, sporting events are not characterised in this country today by a celebration of um, the, the national singing of the national anthem. I mean, yes, I know it does happen at uh, various finals of different sports, but in general, um, it's, it's not something we see in everyday sporting events. Would that have been the case in, for example, the period you're talking about after the Boer War, when, you know, the Kipling days and the, the, the idea of empire was being popularised very much, would there have been much more celebration or attempted celebration uh, woven into the, uh, in, into the practice of mass participation sport? Um, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure whether the national anthem would have been, for example, habitually sung at football matches or rugby matches um, in, in those days. Have you, have you got any kind of evidence about that? No, I think you're right. Um, uh, the, it's the level of nationalism um, that you see as part of games, uh, as part of ma you know, match day experience, if you like, the, the level of nationalism that we see today is a relatively new thing. I mean, so for example, the the um, the extent to which um, uh, Remembrance Day and the poppy has become part and, and the links with the military has become part of uh, football and rugby over the last thirty years uh, you know, is is something that didn't exist before. Um, yeah, certainly when I was growing up, I, I thought it was just I thought it was just my memory that was failing, but I'm, I'm glad no, somebody else can't remember didn't, it. Didn't either. exist. And the other, there's a great example of where, you know, I think that in although there was a sport was ideologically seen um, as, uh, you know, as part of the imperial narrative, if you like, but the actual playing and watching of sport um, wasn't necessarily seen in the same way. So, for example. At the outbreak of World War One, um, there was uh, attempts to recruit people at matches, and recruiting uh, sergeants would be invited into football uh, and 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 rugby uh, rugby league grounds to make speeches uh, to try and get working class men to enlist. And there were abject failures. I mean, there's stories like they I think they went to Highbury and they managed to recruit you know three people from a crowd of thirty thousand. Um, and so there's lots of examples of where this didn't uh, this didn't work even at you know even at the height of jingoism in, in the first world war. So I think that that kind of very explicit, very in your face nationalism and patriotism uh, that we see today at, at, uh, at sporting events and, um, is a relatively new development. And, and, it certainly is, and it's something that. Sorry, Alex, but uh, just uh, as a as a Celtic fan, this caused a lot of controversy because Celtic to a certain extent, don't see themselves as a club inside the traditions of the British Empire. And there was a big banner up a couple of years ago saying you can basically stick your bloodstained poppy, uh, which might be yeah. harsh, but at the same time, I can certainly understand the sympathy behind that. Regarding sport and the empire, uh, so sport as self-power, to what extent do you think that the British Empire used sport as a means of manufacturing some kind of consent and legitimacy? I loved the book, but one of the more dispiriting things about it was reading that the great C.L.R. James, who wrote some fantastic books like Black Jacobins, he seemed to actually buy into the bullshit about the amateurism and the grit and the whole pile of cant which is sold about that. Give us your take on that, please, sir. Yeah, I think I think C.L.R. James is a very interesting, contradictory figure because 
um, you know, despite its fantastic historical work, and as you say, Black Jacobins is a, is a groundbreaking book about uh, Toussaint Louverture and the, 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 the Haitian Revolution. Um, his view of sport is incredibly traditional um, in terms of both um, um, supporting the the ideas of what sport represents, the traditional British ideas of what sport represents, uh, particularly amateurism um, and the belief that you know, the amateur, the way that the English middle classes played sport, particularly cricket, um, was the ideal way that sport should be played. So that's a kind of, um, in a sense, despite the fact he wrote a lot about cricket, it was also one of his blind spots. He was incapable of uh, understanding how, um, you know, the same contradictions in capitalist society that he pointed out so well in other works also operated in in sport as well so um yeah so i think i think yeah i think anybody who approaches james for a a marxist view of sport is going to be very disappointed sadly um sorry i forgot what the first part of the question was this is your this, this is a comment particularly on his uh, his public his book uh, beyond a boundary um, which yeah. is is, is it, it's about cricket but I, I would just can i just come back on clr james and that mm. period as uh, sorry stuart to jump in like that but mm. the i mean you've also got in the same period that clr james is in britain and in writing in britain um the appearance of uh west indian caribbean cricketers playing in Lancashire League and I think that's a, a terrifically interesting uh, period because some of the people who are coming over and playing later go on to become some of the most important political figures uh, at the time of the fight for uh, independence uh, from dominion status so I mean Leary Constantine for example is, is it, does he play for Nelson or Nelson yeah yeah he plays for Nelson and there were a number of other great uh, West Indian cricketers who went on to be significant political figures, um, either in the labour movement or in politics uh, in the Caribbean, uh, who played in Lancashire League cricket in the 1920s and 30s uh, and later. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, it's interesting, again, that it's, they play in the Lancashire League, uh, which is a, you know, it's a, it's a, semi-professional organization and I, I i suspect there's some parallels with rugby league's acceptance of black players during the same period in the 1920s and 1930s and the working class communities in those lancashire uh, towns and villages where they have semi-pro teams like nelson it's 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 not a big place at all um there's also there's also quite a radical tradition in nelson and so it's 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 easy for them to accept black players in their team as representatives of their local community because of those pre those political traditions. Absolutely. Red Nelson, uh, the yeah. whole tradition of uh, the East Lancs towns, yeah. So let's get back to some of the sporting myths and metaphors here. One of the great myths of capitalism, neoliberal capitalism in particular, is the level playing field. And sport, of course, has a, a direct sort of metaphorical significance here. Uh, Tony, despite all the affirming mythology, do you think that uh, access to the playing field was ever a level thing that everybody had equal access to? No, uh, and even in fact, quite literally, access to playing fields is a massive issue. 
today because many schools and local authorities have sold them off. So that the, the metaphor kind of collapses as soon as you, you look at it in, uh, in its most literal sense. Um, but again, one of the things that makes sport so appealing is the fact that it appears to allow people to compete on an equal footing. And I think that's what makes it more shocking when you see examples in sport of discrimination, whether it's, uh, you know, it's class discrimination or racial discrimination or gender discrimination, because doesn't, you know, sport is where everybody can compete on equal terms. But in reality, that's not the case because um, people, uh, before they even get on the pitch, there's differences in the opportunities opportunities that people have to play sport to learn sport to train sport so if you go to a um and you can see this is you can see this in uh, in the england cricket team and in, and in the olympics teams as well um if you go to a uh, a private school and particularly one of the higher ranked private schools public schools the range of sports facilities that are available to you are inconceivable to those of us who went to a state school um, in terms of facilities, uh, training, coaching. Uh, and that's always been as part of the tradition of the British public schools that, that you, know, you can learn to play high level sport there. So that's a, a, you know, so even before you start, when you're at school, that, that's a difficulty. Uh, and then uh, I think there are other, other issues. I mean, we touched on it earlier on about working class players being, uh, working class football players being criticised for being paid huge amounts of money. There's also those cultural biases against working class players uh, and the, the behaviour that is tolerated. Um, so, for example, uh, you know, um, drunken, um, uh, drunken, bad drunken behaviour uh, amongst rugby union players. Yeah. I'm not picking on rugby union, but in rugby union players, is seen as high jinx. It's, you know, it's just young men letting steam off. Whereas if footballers do that or rugby league players do that, then it's a very serious issue. And doesn't it demonstrate that these people need to learn lessons and what's going wrong with our society that people can do this? So, so I think both at a practical level in terms of um, the opportunity to develop your own skills, uh, for people to develop their skills as, as players, there's never an equal it, there's never an equal playing field and one for those people who do get there and, and in sports that are dominated by by working class players like football and rugby league there's still huge problems in terms of the way they are portrayed in the me in the media and the way in which they um yeah you know, the way in which working class sport um it's talked about Let's carry on this metaphor a little bit further into uh, neo-colonialist capitalism, because you talk in the book about how poorer countries are used as development farms for sporting resources by richer nations. Now, this is interesting because the French side that won the World Cup a couple of years ago, the, uh, the soccer World Cup, uh, that was largely an African team that were just playing with French jerseys. Tell us about that. Well, I think that... Um what's happened i think is it's if you take the long view it's quite interesting what's happened to um players from western european colonies in the uh, up until the 1940s and the 50s the racist myth was that um non-white people um didn't have the the stamina or the um uh, or the ability to play sports at a high level 
and that that was you know the you know, the, the racist myth is that you know, black people are too lazy to do this and this was commonly a commonly heard trope however once they started to get the opportunity to participate and take part it was clear that you know given the opportunity like everybody else black people could also be world champions and set world records and then the narrative changed to one the racist narrative changed to to one in which uh, black people were naturally uh, more athletic than white uh, and that that's a, that explains why they were so successful in sports um, i mean again this these are all these are all absurd racist myths i mean at one point um uh, boxing in, boxing in the 1930s was dominated and was dominated by jewish boxers um and so much so that you know uh, boxing in in many parts of uh, britain in america was seen as a jewish sport uh, that jews had uh, Jews were intrinsically better at it than Gentiles because they were more intelligent and were craftier. And all the racist tropes about Jewish people were used in um, uh, to, 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 to demonstrate why they, why they produced so many champions, rather than the fact they were living in abject poverty and this was one of the few ways they had uh, to get out of that poverty. Uh, so that, so you know, racism in sport has always been a central part of sporting uh, discourse. And I think that's because it goes back to the fact that sport was seen as part of the um, the the imperial project, the colonial project, and therefore non-white peoples who were sub yeah who were subject to that oppression, um, whatever they did, they had to be portrayed in negative terms. So, and that you get that in soccer, and that is true in soccer. And I think that, uh, over the last twenty to thirty years, we've also seen a new f the new phenomenon where um, Football has become massively popular in Africa. Uh, there are huge numbers of um, you know, talented African footballers who are uh, trying to find a way out of the poverty that imperialism has imposed on Africa. And so they've, you know, they've become footballers and they've been swept up, vacuumed up almost by European clubs in the hope they're going to find one player, uh, a champion player. When they're not uh, successful, or they don't meet the heights, you know, the, the the levels that these clubs want, uh, that these clubs want, then uh, um, they're discarded, and so you have an enormous, um, as I said, basically a vacuuming up of of young African players, uh, young teenage African players, who are then uh, you know poked and prodded and uh, tested to see if they can uh, make the grade in the top levels of European football, and those that for whatever reason. Uh, don't meet the standards that are set, uh, you know, uh, basically sent back uh, to Africa with no means of support. Uh, their families are no better off than what they were before, which is, again, this is a something that's happened in uh, um, it's in imperialism since the, since the 19th century. It's very similar to the way in which indentured labourers were were picked up from India and, tra and uh, sent to the West Indies or the way in which Pacific Islanders were um, taken to Australia to work, in, uh, work on the land in Australia in the 19th and early 20th centuries. So it's sport has uh, replicated you know, imperialism's use of, of, uh, uh, of labour. Yeah, I, I watch a lot of Bundesliga and a, a lot of the French League, and a huge number of the players are African. And they're the success stories. You never find out what happens to the poor guys yeah. who don't make it, which is the vast majority, unfortunately. Alex, any observations or questions so far? Well, I, I think um, the, the other thing that's gone alongside the uh, the process of raiding Africa for sporting talent 
uh, is also the development of the African uh, football leagues uh, and the African Football Cup uh, as well, which you know is becoming one of the most exciting um, leading competitions in world football. So I, I think it's more complex than uh, simply a one-way. I mean, I mean, colonialism sort of describes the process by whereby uh, the colonial country simply rips out the raw material, develops it for its own needs, throws away what it doesn't want, and then exports manufactured products. But that, to me, isn't exactly what's going on in its entirety with the uh, with the hoovering up of African footballing talent. Um, you, you're also you you do also see football is the lingua franca or the the it is becoming the, the continental sport uh, of of africa a, a continent that um has been you know over uh 140 years divided subdivided conquered uh fought for its liberation uh re had imperial uh, arrangements reimposed through the International Monetary Fund, uh, and yet football is emerging as this continental uh, thing in common, which uh, I think is really important. So, I, I mean, I was just listening this morning, uh, very early this morning, uh, to uh, the matches that were played last night um, in the African Cup of Nations, uh, and you know, the, the results are broadcast even on the BBC World Service, uh, because they have a massive, massive audience out there who follow eagerly the fortunes of very, very small uh, countries uh, with very, very small GDPs, but very, very competitive football teams. So I think it's, uh, there is something else going on apart from simply uh, a colonial relationship. Football, because it's about, um, because it's, one of the most accessible sports let's be honest it's the, it's the most one of the most accessible sports all you need is a ball uh, a lot of the other sports that you talk about for example in the british public school system are capital intensive sports uh, if you want to do archery you've got to have uh, you know some pretty good uh, safety arrangements to make sure you don't shoot each other if you're playing cricket you've got to have uh, real estate and a field that you can uh, at least prepare to a certain standard, and the same goes for you know most um, you know most team sports require a good deal of capital uh, capital investment. Uh, football is an accessible sport because it doesn't require uh, a heavy capital investment, and, and you don't need to be big to play football. Rugby, American football, basketball—you need a certain physique. Anybody of any size can play football. Absolutely. I mean, my favourite film that I saw last year was Maradona. Uh, yeah. One of the one of the greatest films uh, I've ever seen, and um, just Maradona, of course, was uh, a tiny little guy. You know, very low center of gravity, uh, and um, what a what a great footballer! Mm. Absolutely, uh, I've right had given steroids early on when he was a kid. By yeah. all accounts, he was very tiny, very skinny. So uh, they fed him steroids from a, an early stage. And that's one of the reasons why he became used to taking drugs. Sorry, Tony, well, you were going to say. Yeah, I was, yeah. Um, no, I, th I think you're right, Alex. That it's it's this kind of you know bent the stick slightly in the other direction. But I, I would say one of the interesting things that is happening to to African football is that, well, 
A, that the European nations have basically sucked the life out of the African club game. Mm-hmm. That you know, you talk, you know, the the interest. People would rather go and watch TV and see a European match, the Bundesliga, La Liga, or whatever, or the Premier League, rather than go and watch their local teams. Um, so th- that's that's become an issue. And I think the other thing that's that's quite interesting is that again, we're all old enough to remember the 1980s when the talk was that an African nation is going to win the World Cup. The African nations are developing uh, so well and so rapidly that at some point by the end of the century, beginning of the 21st century, Af- an African nation will win the World Cup. And th- that's less, that appears to be less likely to happen now than what it did then. And I think that's because of the way in which the... Um, uh, in which the, the football in Africa has become, despite the success of the African Nations Trophy, uh, has become an adjunct of European football. And the same, it's quite possible that those same processes um, will uh, take place in uh, in South America as well. The, the money uh, that is available in Western Europe will uh, suck players out of that. And the, the, so they'll have nothing left but their national teams uh, when the, the European clubs release them. And that affects so, so, yeah. teams. Sorry, I was just going to say, yeah. South America is interesting because that great Brazil 1970 side, which people of our age look back to as probably the best yeah, football yeah. side yeah. ever, they all played in Brazil and they played as a team and trained as a team for three months before that game. I think almost every big star from Brazil now plays overseas. Uh, Argentina, Uruguay, very few play for the local sides anymore. And that affects their ability. I think what's also interesting about the African takeover of the French national side in particular, it's not done anything to make race relations any better in France. Remember when they won in 1998, they said then that multinational side, the famous picture of all the different colored arms, things didn't get better at that. That side that won a couple of years ago was, I think there was only a couple of guys in there who were kind of traditional French white guys. But I don't know if there's any big thawing in race relations in France on the back of that. So it makes one, a difference. One of the, I think one of the, one of the paradoxes is um, why China hasn't developed uh, one of the most powerful football leagues uh, in, in the world. I mean, you look at India and the Indian Premier, the IPL in cricket, which is now the driving force in development of world cricket. It's, uh, by far and away the biggest uh, generation of advertising revenue and capital uh, in world cricket. And yet in China, where you've got effectively what is now probably the biggest economy in the world, if the truth were told, it's probably overtaken the United States. Um, you, you ha- you've, st- you haven't, you've got this immense hunger for Manchester United and uh, Liverpool, but it doesn't seem to have generated or built, uh, paradoxically, its own mass uh, football uh, infrastructure, uh, which is very surprising when you consider that in every other respect, China is a, a planned society and, and capable of the most incredible developmental, uh, develop, developmental feats. Uh, do you, I mean, do you, do you not find that strange? Well, I don't... I was lucky enough to be able to go and teach in China for uh, for a few weeks uh, two years ago, and I was actually very surprised because I went to teach at the Beijing Sports University, which is like the place to uh, where the elite athletes go to train, and um, so it's, it's the place to be for sport. 
I was surprised that the main sport there that everybody plays and talks about is basketball. Mm. People were more interested in the National Basketball Association championships in the states than they were in, than they were in football, uh, which I found. Which again, it's not the. We, I think in Britain we don't, we never realised that the second most popular sport in the world is basketball. Uh, so that was quite interesting. Um, there's also a sense um, that China China has a long history of basketball. It also has a long history of table tennis. Uh, which is an interesting story, in interesting story in itself. But anyway, um, it doesn't have a pre-existing football culture, and so um, most of what Chinese football is is brought in from the outside. So there was this thing ten years ago when the Chinese Premier League or whatever it was called was set up. Lots of money was poured into it, um, and there's a hardcore of football supporters in China, and you know people know Manchester. Uh, so but they are in a sense it's almost like a, a a cult following these are hardcore supporters in the sense that um teams represent their local community doesn't exist in the same way it's in a sense what's happened is that football has become part of the entertainment industry and the things that are important uh, about it in britain and western europe that it's you know it's a community sport. It represents your your locality. People are invested in the club, um, it, whether they go to games or not. It's just part of their local life. That really doesn't exist. And I know talking to some um, some some Britons who'd lived there for a long time who were involved in in football, they they were quite mystified as to why that didn't exist in China. And I think it's, it's simply it's it's a different different society and a different culture. And also you have the, the other thing that happened in China was that the, um, the Chinese CP didn't like the fact that there was so much money being spent on bringing players in from overseas, quite rightly, and uh, decided to put a check on the amount of money that could be spent. So, you know, you've, the other problem, I think, and again, if you don't have that long-standing culture, it's no matter how many people you have playing the game, it's very difficult to reach a high standard. And if you can't reach a high standard, the political importance, the soft diplomatic importance of sport diminishes. So basketball is very important and there are Chinese players in the NBA and there's a strong Chinese, uh, you know, strong Chinese, bas basketball is strong in China. Um, very true. Sorry, football doesn't have that tradition. I remember a few years ago, there was a big study in China amongst Chinese school kids who was the greatest man in human history. And Michael Jordan won, I think, 65, 70% of the vote. The success of basketball, a game which most people in the UK find really quite ridiculous and unwatchable. It's huge over the planet. Israel, uh, basketball is huge. Croatia, it's a huge game as well. Uh, we must move on, get back to sport and capitalist society. Tony, can we try here and put to bed this myth? And I was talking to a, a Spanish anarchist about this a while ago. A very attractive woman, so I listened to her, but she came out with this usual stuff about sport is a big distraction from the struggle. When you look at the history of working class struggle against capitalism, it's the areas where sport was strongest that bred the most militant. West of Scotland, South Wales, large parts of the north of England. Why do you think this myth has prospered? Um, it's, it's a myth that's held by people on the left and people on the right. Um, yeah. And I think because on the face of it, it you know, there's 
if you're spe- if you're spending your Saturday afternoons going to watch football or play football, then it means you can't go to political meetings. Um, but as you said, it's when you actually think about it in terms of where sport is strong, then in Glasgow at the start of the 20th century, there were you know they they ha- there were three stadiums in Glasgow where each accommodated a hundred thousand spectators. Yet by the time you get to uh, so football is. In, you know, unbelievably strong. Glasgow's the world capital of football at that time. Yet you also have the most militant working class in Britain that in 1919 you know, could conceivably have, uh, have tried to seize power in Glasgow. Similarly in South Wales, you have a very strong South Wales working class, Rabuni's very strong, and in you know, most militant parts of, um, of the industrial north, football and rugby league are, are very strong. Not only that, they're seen as part of that continu- continuum of working class life. So I think it's a kind of, um, uh, it, it's, it's a kind of one dimensional view of working class life that, well, you're interested in football, therefore you can't be interested in politics. And that's, that's never the case at all. Um, and I think it's also something that, uh, yeah, yeah, the, the, um, the Bushes has actually tried uh, and believes to some extent has actually tried to to use. So um, it's not an accident that in the 1920s, um, many, many companies uh, opened recreational facilities, uh, started works, football teams, cricket teams, rugby teams. There was a massive growth of uh, welfare capitalism uh, from factory owners. Because, which is essentially in response to the um, to the Russian Revolution and the upsurge in working class militancy after World War One. So there is that sense that well, if we if we can provide uh, sports facilities, it may take their minds off um, you know problems at work or broader political problems. But there's not there's no there's no evidence that, that that's ever ever been the case. And yeah, you know, as, as you pointed out in the question. Um, being being a hotbed of football doesn't stop anywhere being a hotbed of militancy either. Hell no. What's your view on this as a trade unionist, Alex? Well, I, I think it's really interesting what you've the, the decline of uh, works sport sporting events and sporting associations. And you know, just from my personal experience, you know, when I started working for British Rail uh, back in the day when it existed, we had a highly developed a series of railway sporting associations. Uh, So you would have football leagues, you would have football teams in most depots where workers got, um, if not paid time off, they would certainly assist you to get your shifts changed so that you could be available to play. Uh, And it was understood that if you got injured on the field, then you you weren't going to get points points on your on your, you know points against you from the from the boss because you were taking part in a approved sporting event approved of by the management uh, but yeah it went much further than that you had an entire regional uh, series of british rail football teams uh, and they would compete together uh, against each other and they would in turn compete as a national railway uh, football team against frankly professional footballers in uh, Eastern European countries where, you know, in the socialist countries where you would have um, football teams that were based around, uh, based around the railway or based around major, uh, ma- you know, major 
uh, industrial plants and, and different industries. So all of that, um, obviously, we know what happened in uh, Eastern Europe uh, after 1990 with the uh, with the, uh, the the demolition of uh, that entire uh, society. But it's also worth looking at what's happened in our own society because in many many workplaces, uh, not just in nationalised industries like British Gas or British Telecom or the Coal Board or uh, British Rail, uh, but in you know many many private companies substantial private companies you would have had sports grounds you would have had bowling greens you would have had football fields you would have had tennis courts grass courts and all of those were sold off in a in a period in the 1990s uh, and the noughties very few of them still exist any longer uh, and now you kind of get um i would suggest that you know there are various um events that are sponsored by private companies uh, once in a while where works teams can get together and you know travel up to uh, Blackpool or somewhere and take each other on in a series of five-a-side competitions but that whole work-sponsored uh, infrastructure has just been decimated in the last 30 years um, it's gone it's been sold off for housing developments or whatever and we never had a vote about it no trade unions ever took it up as an issue to fight over. I find it, or at least not to my knowledge, and I'm speaking as an active trade unionist, I don't think we ever raised that issue in our union branch or nationally in our union as something that we should be fighting for. But it's a, a massive, massive loss. It's part of the social wage, actually. Uh, you know, when you think about the, all the things that you earn at work that aren't uh, just part of your pay packet, uh, but things that, you know, for example, your right to t your right to uh contractual rights to sick pay or you know promotional uh promotional steps and things like this that you have as part of your contract of employment that are not embodied in the weekly wage packet you know our right to play sport with each other was part of that and it's gone it's been taken from us and uh, we didn't put up a fight and i find that so shocking really because it's me i i didn't put up a fight either and i used to play in the I used to play in the annual six-a-side cricket competition of the of the British Rail, you know, Western region. We used to have teams from Penzance, Gloucester, Paddington, Bristol, South Wales. Sometimes several teams from each depot would turn up and we'd have a fantastic day out playing cricket. All gone. It's something definitely worth fighting for. And uh, yeah, you're quite like the, a, a neglected part of the, the social wage in the past. Gentlemen, we need to come to a close, but we have to go ahead and talk a little bit here about the media. The media was obviously very important from Tony's book in the growth of sport, and its importance now is also quite extraordinary. It was the media, Sky Money, that made Union end its uh, dedication to amateurism, albeit somewhat dubious amateurism. Uh, and apparently now the Premiership football deal with BT and Sky accounts for something like 25% of the entire TV producing budget in the UK, which is an extraordinary figure when you think about it. Tony, given that, what's your take on the immediate future of sport in the UK? Um, well, that's why I'm a historian, so I don't have to try and predict the future. Um, <laughs> I, th I think it's, we're going through very interesting times because obviously 
um, the, the rise of the internet and social media and YouTube and all that means that, you know, the, the media landscape is no longer, the well, what we would say is, people of our age would say it's traditional that it's newspapers, radio and, uh, and TV. Um, and that's going to have an impact on sport because certainly you look around the world and TV deals are not as lucrative for many sports as what they have been in the past. And uh, again, using the example of rugby league, rugby league's negotiating its uh, its next TV deal with Sky, presumably the Sky. Um, and the general feeling is that they it won't get as much money as what it got the last time around, and then it have to um, uh, tighten its belt a bit. So I think that there's going to be probably, given the way that social media is starting to dominate the landscape, then. Um, there's going to be a fracturing and a, um, a reconfiguration of the way sport is, um, uh, is, is seen on the media and the different medias. And, and again, two points, I think. One, that that relationship between sport, that when the media changes, sport changes. That's always been true because in the, uh, the 1700s, sport emerged on the back of the growth of newspapers and newly emerging daily newspapers. Again, football, rugby in the late 19th century were part and parcel of the growth of mass literacy. Newspapers, 1920s and 30s, sport growth because of the radio. 50s, 60s, TV, and then you know, 90s, the noughties. Satellite TV transformed sport again. So we're probably going to enter one of those periods. But I think the other thing... The other thing that's important, and I, I, I'm always wary about, I'm always wary about how we present these arguments. And I think Kate, this is, I, I thought this when, when Alex was talking, that yes, yeah, sport is dominated by capitalism, and it's a product of capitalism. The way we see sport is a product of capitalism, but that's not the only model of sport. And so this, the way that um, sport was organised on a factory works basis, although this was done by employers as a kind of sop to to working class people, nevertheless. That was a way in which um, it, you know, working class people could get access to sporting facilities. And as you say, uh, in Eastern Europe, before the counter-revolution in the 1990s, sport was provided on a works basis where it was just part and parcel of the daily working life. And I think the key, yeah, so this is the thing. Sport, as we know, it may have emerged from capitalism, but what it, what it gave rise to is a a fantastic cultural institution that allows people to express themselves and bring out their creativity and experience emotions in a an, in a way that they can't experience outside of the great um, great events of life and death. So it's important that you know, we do, we don't lose sight of that, and that no matter what capitalism does to sport, there's a what it can bring to people. Uh, is, is 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 crucially important. It, like like the other inventions of late nineteenth and early twentieth century capitalism, like the cinema, it, it it allows people to express their creativity and experience things that have previously been unavailable to to civilization. So um, you know, so it, it's it's important to recognise that while also um, recognising and acknowledging the, the 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 impact that capitalism has on human creativity in the human spirit and also yeah sport can form a collective which can have an influence on people too uh, yeah. like my side celtic is now quite a solid influence for uh, left-wing politics and particularly pro-palestinian politics in uh, in scottish society 
we were chatting a while ago that one of my son's friends recently started going to West Ham. Friend is too strong a term, but he, he knew the kid. And he's got to West Ham and got quite unpleasantly influenced by some of the more racist elements there. I'm not saying all West Ham fans are racist, but it does happen. And we were talking, had he gone down the road to Dulwich Hamlet and met the people that watched that team and started watching his local side, he would have been subject to a quite different range of influences. Uh, similar, if you're in Hamburg, you go to SV, then uh, you'll get some racist neo-Nazi bullshit there. You go to St. Pauli or Altona, you'll get quite a different gig. So, uh, and also there's the tension, the conflict there. Rio Vallecano in Vallecas, the management tend to be quite right-wing, whereas the fans are particularly left-wing. So you get that tension there, but again, they've come overall they produced a, a left-wing thinking, which is quite important. The club a while ago actually campaigned for a particular lady who lost her home, and the supporters were able to influence the management to actually take part in that campaign. So we've been a bit negative. You're quite right. Sport can be a force for good. Uh, okay, um, after that little sermonette, um, Alex, uh, do you want to go ahead and wrap things up for us, sir, or are we all done? You're giving me the uh, the final whistle, are you? On you um, go. Okay, well, no, I just, um, I think it's been a really interesting conversation. I just want to thank Tony Collins, who's um, been so generous with his time uh, today. And this is just, for me, it's been so enjoyable listening to you and discussing, well, you know, it's a, a game of three halves. There's been uh, three of us in here, and it's it's been a really, really interesting and informative discussion and I hope people enjoy it because um, I certainly have and so I just really want to thank you Tony um, and uh, I, I do look forward to hopefully meeting up with you IRL one day and uh, buying you a pint because I'm sure you'd be uh, great uh, great talking to uh, at a bar as well so um, thanks very much and um, really look forward to meeting you again soon well hopefully well, likewise, one day thank in you. Yeah. whenever the French rugby league yeah. kicks off again let's head down there and watch a game down the south yeah absolutely what a good idea. Cassoulet, yeah. yeah. Tony, thank you very much indeed, sir. It's been fantastic. And thank you very much for your time and all the stuff you've produced over the years. Thank you. My pleasure entirely. And thanks to you guys out there for listening. Hope you enjoyed that. All the best now. See you next time. Take me to the Reaper plan with the fans of San Paolo. Standing on the Tamerson. We'll back them all the way No Nazi scum will overcome The fans of Santa Ode.